Well, again, welcome to Bachelor Creek for our Back to School Sunday. We are so thankful that all of you are here, but especially our teachers, our administrators, our school employees. Uh, we want to let you know that after our service, we have a gift for you. We've got a $10 food voucher. Uh, if you go through the, uh, these doors into the lobby at the connecting point, pick up that gift for you. You can use those for a meal or a treat at any of the food trucks uh, outside today. Just our way of saying thank you. Uh, for what you mean to us, what you mean to our students, and what you mean to our community. I also want to let you know that last Sunday, we collected all of the supplies from our Christmas in July initiative, and this past week, we delivered all of the food to Fish, one of our local missions, and then we delivered all the school supplies to our local schools, and through your generosity, we were able to donate, and, and these numbers continue to change as more comes in, but 139 bottles of hand sanitizer, 210 bottle, boxes of Kleenexes, 4,024 pencils, 510 dry erase markers, 212 containers of Clorox wipes, 67 electric pencil sharpeners, and then hundreds and hundreds of items for treasure boxes. Those were too hard to count. Uh, plus, we gave 200 bags of food to fish. So, Bachelor Creek, again, thank you for your generosity. Uh, it's making a huge difference, uh, especially this time of year. So, let's go ahead and again, just give yourselves a hand. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8. I'll tell you, I think one of the worst experiences in life has to be taking a big swig of milk only to realize that it's turned sour. This happened to me not too long ago, and the lumps of the curdles was actually, I could feel those before I actually tasted the taste. Yeah, it was bad. One of the scariest moments is when the date on the milk jug is a couple of days past, but you don't want to throw it out if it's not bad, so you do the, you do the little smell test. You don't want to waste it, right? If it's good, you don't want to waste it. Milk's expensive. And so that, that moment of bringing it to your nose is kind of like the, the anticipation of getting a shot. It's like, I know what's coming, but... Or parents, have you ever had this where you find that sippy cup in the back of the van? And you're thinking to yourself, how long has this been here? Is it, is it water? Is it juice? Is it milk? Please don't be milk. Please don't be milk. We've all been there. Today we're going to look at a good leader who turns sour. He never becomes an evil man, per se. He just spoils, and he ruins his ministry and his kids in the process. And we're going to see the effect of Gideon souring on at least two generations of judges. So part one today, we're looking at how Gideon turns sour. This is chapter eight. We left Gideon last week on a high note. He had just pulled off the most incredible upset in military history. With only 300 soldiers, he had defeated a massive Midianite army of about 100,000 soldiers without even having a single casualty on his side. And so you have this scene, this picture of champagne bottles popping, of carrying, getting around on their shoulders, yelling, Hail Gideon! But after this, he goes back, and as often happens after a great victory, the people begin backbiting and bickering with each other. And so the next chapter opens up with him in conflict with two clusters of Israelites. The first is Ephraim, a wealthy tribe in Israel who seems to have gotten their pride hurt because they got left out. And so they ream Gideon for not calling on them to lead in the battle. The second group is a couple of smaller townships named 
Succoth and Penuel. And they just refuse to help because they don't take Gideon that seriously. Their offenses are similar. What is striking is how differently Gideon responds to each. To large, wealthy Gideon, or excuse me, to large, wealthy Ephraim, Gideon responds with flattery. He woos them over. To the smaller towns of Succoth and Penuel, however, he responds with harshness. He actually goes so far as to torture the leaders of Succoth by wrapping them in briars and beating them. And then he levels the town of Penuel and kills the inhabitants. His response is inconsistent. It seems based more on what's better for him than what God wants. See, Gideon needed the tribe of Ephraim. He knew that he couldn't beat them anyways, and so he flatters them to get them back on his side. However, Succoth and Penuel are weaker than him. He has no need for them, so he just wipes them out. And I think the bigger point in this is that in neither case did Gideon consult God to see what he wanted. He just did what he wanted to do based on what he had the power to do. And what you're seeing is that something is happening in Gideon's heart. Fresh off this incredible victory over the Midianites, he's already forgotten whose battle it is. His heart has turned inward and gone sour. He used to say success is following Jesus. Now he says success is doing whatever I want. We read in Judges 8, beginning in verse 22, the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now this was actually a great response on Gideon's part because God had told Israel that they would not need a king because God would be their king. So, so far, so good. But jump down to verse 30. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. He had a harem and 70 sons, which sounds pretty king-like to me. Only kings in those days had a wife pool like that. Verse 31, his concubine who lived in Shechem also bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. Now, Abimelech in Hebrew literally means my dad is the king. What? It kind of sounds like Gideon sees himself as a king, doesn't it? Go back to verse 24. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. So now he's collecting taxes. Again, it sounds like a king, right? Verse 27, Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Oprah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Now, an ephod was the vest that the high priest wore into the presence of God when he went to make requests to God on behalf of the people. The ephod, the ephod, according to God's instructions, was to only to be worn by the tribe of Levi and only when they were at the tabernacle. Gideon creates his own version of that. So he may not be trying to deny God, but he's put himself in the place of God and he's taken upon himself privileges that belong only to God and now he's directing the people's attention away from God. You say, what's happened to Gideon? 
Well, evidently his victory has given him a taste for glory. And that leads him to blasphemy, and he becomes a curse to Israel. So now, instead of being the deliverer of the people who taught them to have faith in God, he has become a stumbling block to the people to keep them away from faith in God. And Bachelor Creek, I'll be honest, as your leader, this fills me with trembling and fear. Because maybe no leader in the Old Testament provides a better example of faith-filled, courageous leadership. He led God's people to such incredible things. But at the end, he sours, he makes it all about himself, and he ends up leading Israel astray. And here we see something with Gideon that we've never seen before in Judges. The people fall away from God while the judge is reigning, not after In every other case, the people fell away after the judge died. Gideon's generation fell away while Gideon was in power because of how Gideon used his power. So there are some clear indicators in Gideon's life that we see that you've made it all about you. And when you see these things in your own life, you can know that you've made it all about you as well. The first is rare prayer. Rare prayer. When Gideon was desperate for God, he prayed instinctively. Now, I think there's a lot of leaders who are type A enough that they pray as a matter of discipline, and that's good. But someone who is really desperate and dependent on God, they pray involuntarily. They pray instinctively because it comes from a place of desperation. It's like breathing. Like the most disciplined person in this room doesn't need to be taught how to breathe. You don't need to be reminded to breathe. You do it instinctively. And there are many of us that pray as a discipline. And listen, prayer as a discipline is good, but prayer that grows out of a desperate realization of your need for God's help is even better. So infrequent, non-desperate prayer is a sure sign you've made it all about you. Second is a failure to listen to others. Not only does Gideon fail to consult God, he doesn't really consult with anybody. And I can tell you, I've seen this so many times in leaders. They they become isolated. They become an island unto themselves. They see themselves on a higher plane above everyone else. They always know what's best. They're no longer humble enough to recognize that they don't know it all. I'm telling you, I've seen this, and it always, it always destroys. Proverbs 18.1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. A third sign is resentment. When it's all about you, you resent those who get in your way. You become harsh and cruel to people who confront you. You can't forgive anyone who challenges you or or obstructs you. You come down on everyone like a hammer except the rich because you need them to advance your purposes. Fourth, materialistic excess. Materialistic excess. For Gideon, he takes people's money and he makes for himself a suit of clothes made of gold. Now, I I don't believe the Bible teaches that that we're to take a vow of poverty or anything like that. I believe that God is a good father, loves to give us good things. But I will say that leaders who have made it all about them, that they live on this higher plane, and so they begin to convince themselves that they deserve all these things. They deserve what's newer. They deserve what's bigger. They deserve what's flashier. And the fifth sign is constant worrying about your name. Constant worrying about your name. You see, when it's all about you, You're always guarding your reputation. 
You're always building your own platform. You're elevating your name. Because of that, you can't handle criticism. You crave praise. You, you need constant affirmation. So those are some signs that you've made it all about you. You know, maybe you were a great leader and you led people to do great things, but in the end, you use that success to substitute yourself for God where you've put on the ephod and you share the glory with God. What an offense, a horrible offense that is to God. Because the church is Jesus' bride, not ours. So for those of you who are in places of leadership, we ought to see our role more as like the best man in a wedding. We know it's not about us. Our job is just to make sure that the wedding happens, right? We make sure everybody's in their place. We spotlight the bride and the groom. That's what John the Baptist did in John 3.30. He said about Jesus, he must become greater and I must become less. And I'll tell you, when I make it about me, what an offense that is to God, what a disservice that is to you. So I'll say what I said last week. Christians most often will pass the test of adversity, but it's the test of prosperity that we fail. When Gideon was small and weak, he depended on God. It was when he got strong that he forgot about God and made it all about himself. Beware your strengths. Don't grieve your weaknesses. Beware your prosperity. Those are the things that woo your heart away from God. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, they've always been haunting verses to me. They say, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my Lord. You say, how do you apply that verse? Does that mean it's wrong to have a savings account? Does that mean it's wrong to be rich? Not at all. These verses are showing you something about your heart. It means that if you do have excess, you must plead with God to protect your heart. You must be as surrendered to him when you're wealthy as you were when you were poor and desperate. And it means that you must be extravagantly generous. Nothing cures the love of money like giving it away. So don't take God's blessing of success in your life and make it all about you. Don't let that good thing that God has done in your life spoil Gideon accomplished so much in ministry. But I want to ask, what good is that if your heart spoils? What good is that if you lose your relationship with God, you lose your joy, and then you spoil your family after you? Which is where we turn next. Chapter 9, we see Abimelech, the thorn bush. After Gideon's death, Abimelech, remember he's the son that Gideon named, my dad is the king. He said, I want to be king like my dad sort of was without the name, except I want the name. And so he hired a bunch of worthless vagabonds to be his posse, and they went out and they killed and ambushed all 69 of Gideon's other sons, except for one son named Jotham, who escaped by hiding in a cabinet. So Abimelech said, well, I guess I have to be king now since my dad has no other sons left. And the leaders of Israel who knew all of this, by the way, crowned him king at Shechem. This was a terrible scandal. First of all, as I've told you, they weren't supposed to have a king. God was supposed to be their king. Secondly, they have chosen a brother-murdering scoundrel to be their king. And to top it all off, this goes down at Shechem, which was a holy place for the Jews. This was the birthplace of their nation. 
This is where God made the promise to Abraham where he renewed it with Joshua. One biblical scholar said that this would be the equivalent of Americans reinstituting slavery at a meeting in Gettysburg. Well, Jotham, the brother who had escaped, he comes out of hiding and he gets in front of Israel's leaders and he tells them a parable about a bunch of trees in a forest who decide they want to choose a king. So first they go to the olive tree and they say, will you be our king? And the olive tree says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm too rich off all the olive production to be bothered with being your king. So likewise, they go to the fig tree. They ask the fig tree, and the fig tree says, no, you know, fig newtons are really taking off right now, so I'm too, I'm too busy. They approach every kind of tree. They go to the grapevine. Nobody wants to be bothered with the burden of being king, and so eventually they find a thorn bush, and they say, will you be our king? And the thorn bush says, sure, but first you have to burn down all the other trees, and so they do. And then Jotham says to the leaders at Shechem, this, this is what you've done. Now, in that parable, there is an implicit criticism of Gideon's other sons. Evidently, there were some good ones who could have led Israel well, but they didn't want to leave their life of ease to serve Israel. Hmm. I wonder where they got that from. You think it could have been that their father Gideon hadn't modeled a life of using your power and riches to serve others? But Jotham's main critique of Israel's leaders is that they anointed an obviously worthless, self-interested, opportunistic politician to lead them. And Jotham says, this is going to come back on you. And sure enough, it does. Abimelech turns out to be a terrible leader. No surprise there. Judges 9 lays out a dizzying account of scandal and sabotage and mass murder during Abimelech's reign. Eventually, all of those leaders in Shechem that anointed him revolt against him. And so Abimelech and his army attack them. The people flee to the city tower, which in those days was like the city's last stronghold. And Abimelech takes, ironically enough, a bunch of thorn bushes. And he packs them around the base of the tower, lights it on fire, and burns over a thousand of them alive inside. Abimelech then moves on to the next city where he drives out all the people back into their tower. But as he's about to light it on fire, there's a woman on the top floor who takes a moderately sized millstone, which was a kitchen appliance used to grind flour, and she leans out the, the top window and drops it, and it crushes Abimelech's head. It doesn't quite kill him, but it smashes him up pretty bad. And as he's laying there, barely conscious, with his head all mangled, he says to one of his servants, quick, kill me with your sword so that I don't go down as yet another guy who was killed by a kitchen utensil. And so his servant does that, and Abimelech dies. You say, aren't these stories and Judges just so pleasant? Here's what Judges 9, 56 and 57 say. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, came on them. What's this generation teaching us? First, God's judgment is slow and sometimes subtle, but always sure. God's name is noticeably absent from chapters 8 and 9. 
But what the narrator shows us in these verses that we just read is that God has been at work the whole time. The invisible hand in history's glove. In all things, he's been working his plan using sinful men as his instruments who have no understanding that they're being used. And while it may seem for a while that evil prevails, that God is absent, stories like this show you that God will have the last word. Perfect justice will be served and God's purposes will be fully accomplished. I've heard it said that the wheels of God's justice grind slowly, but finally. A few weeks ago, I told you that in this life, we may not see every wrong righted. But there are enough stories like this in the Bible to assure us that one day, they will be. Stories like this warn us that we must not let the slowness of God's judgment lull us into complacency. The Apostle Peter says that throughout human history, mankind has often mistaken God's patience and delay in judgment for his absence. He tells the story of Noah. Nearly a hundred years took place between the time that God announced that the flood would happen and the time when it actually came. And most people interpreted that long period of time as God's failure to act. But Peter says it was demonstrating God's patience, giving people time to repent. In 2 Peter 3, 8, 9, he says, The Lord is not slow as some perceive slowness, but to the Lord a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. He says, God does not desire that any should perish, but that all might come to repentance. Even now, Peter says, people assume the delay of the coming of Christ means that he's not really coming back. But he is. So don't use what God intends to be space to repent with his absence. You say, I, I can repent tomorrow. Tomorrow is just going to be like today. But maybe not. The Bible tells us the Lord comes like a thief in the night when no one expects it. So don't let this time of patience lull you into complacency. The Bible says today, today is the day of salvation. The second lesson we learn is that the problem is not out there, it's in here. The problem is not out there, it's in here. This story is the first one in Judges where the actual oppression comes not from outside of Israel, but it comes from within them. It's one of their own people, the son of one of their greatest leaders, that is the oppressor. And so finally, it's made clear that foreign nations are not Israel's problem. They are their own problem. And this has kind of always been the case, but now we see it most clearly. In fact, think about this. There is no special outpouring of judgment in this story. No fire sent from the sky. God just allowed them to experience the results of their own sinful choices. Gideon's self-centeredness and his lust for power produced a son who murdered his brother so he could be king. Shechem's disregard for God's commands and their self-interest led them to selecting an opportunistic man. Abimelech's treachery and his backstabbing leads to his downfall. See, sin is its own curse. Israel is its own problem. Our sin, not God, curses our family. Which leads me to number three. We need a new king, a better judge. Like the Israelites, we come to God thinking that we primarily need him to deliver us from some bad thing. God, deliver me from pain, deliver me from broken relationships, deliver me from a lack of money. And we may need those things. But that's not what we most need. What we need most is freedom from our own heart. 
we are our own curse. So any salvation that fails to deal with the human heart is not a real salvation. Think about this for a minute. What if God answered all of our prayers and what if he gave us everything that we ask for? He gave us prosperity. He gave us education. He gave us good government. Do you think that that would create heaven on earth? Really? What if, what if he gave us infinite amounts of money? Do you think that would make us a more virtuous people? Does the name Kardashian mean anything to you? I saw a study recently that said drivers of luxury cars are less likely to stop for pedestrians at a crosswalk. The same study said that people in higher brackets of wealth and education are four times more likely to cheat at a card game when there's money at stake. So no, money does not make us more virtuous. What, what if we were more educated? Does education eradicate evil? Stalin and Lenin were two very educated men and they were the most brutal tyrants of the 20th century. No, education does not make us more virtuous. Even if we're perfectly governed, does good government guarantee goodness in people? I think the best answer to this came from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was the man who was for years imprisoned in the gulag by Joseph Stalin. He said this, he said, I entered into the gulag thinking it was the communists who were evil. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, then we would separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy his own heart? See, that's always what we think, isn't it? We think evil is them. We think evil is out there. Oh, it's the capitalists. No, it's the communists. It's the Republicans. No, it's the Democrats. It's the, it's the undereducated. No, it's the people on Wall Street. And God says, no, the evil is you. The heart has to be changed. Your heart needs to be changed. We need a Savior who will not only deliver us from the curse around us, but will deliver us from the curse within us. We don't just need a Savior to fix our situation. We need a Savior who will fix us. We need a king who will not only rule with love and justice, but who will make us like him. And that's why all of these stories point us through their messiness and through their disappointments and through their failures to the ultimate king who would come, the Lord Jesus. Jesus, you see, in many ways, would be the opposite of Gideon. Unlike Gideon, he had every right to demand service as a king. And unlike Gideon, he rightfully wears the ephod because he is the tabernacle of God's presence on earth. But unlike Gideon, Jesus successfully resists the temptation to rule over the nations when Satan offered it to him. And until the very end of his life, Jesus maintained that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't take our treasures to make a garment of gold for himself. He poured out his blood to clothe us in his righteousness and give us a seat at his table forever. Jesus was definitely the opposite of Abimelech. Unlike the trees of the forest who were too self-interested to rule, Jesus was more than willing to be our shepherd. But when we chopped him down and killed him, he didn't burn us to the ground in his anger. He willingly took the fire of God's judgment for us into himself in love to save us. The millstone of God's judgment was dropped on his head for us. He is the true king we seek in every reform. We often think that salvation is horizontal. 
We think that it's in a better relationship, it's in a better marriage, it's a better career, it's in more money. But salvation is, is vertical. That, that, that's our problem. Salvation is being embraced by the Savior from whom you're created. And if you come to understand Jesus as the king that you've been seeking for all along, he will change your heart. He will make you more like him. Let's pray. Father, stories like this in, in, in Judges can be sobering. There's such a warning for us to see how Gideon started out so good and how things ended so badly. God, I pray that we wouldn't just flip through these pages and, and move on to the next story, but we would stop and we would pause right now to discern what it is that, that you're saying to us, what you're speaking to us in our hearts. God, I pray that, that we, would, we would be reluctant to point the finger and say that the problem is out there, God, when it starts right here. It starts with us. God, I pray that you would change our hearts. God, as, as we go out into our week for our, our, our teachers and for our, our students who are going to a new school year, God, I pray that before we can, we can change our communities and before we can change our schools and before we can change other people's lives, God, you got, you got to first work on our heart. So I pray that we would open up our hearts to you. We would allow you to, to work into our lives, to speak into our hearts. Help us to realize that what we're truly seeking for all along is found in you and you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.